1: Oh,
0: Recorded live.
2: Hey guys, it's uh Chris McCombs here and I have uh my friend Eric Anderson here with me. And uh we're the subject today is gonna be uh presuppositional apologetics. And uh I kinda wanna start by reading a passage out of the Bible, uh the book of Ecclesiastes which I think is probably the most philosophical book of the Bible, and uh, really pertains to this subject uh, in a lot of different places. Um, But uh, this verse here, Ecclesiastes 8.1, it says, Who is like a wise one, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. That's a very good question. Uh, who knows the interpretation of a thing? And also, here, uh, Ecclesiastes 8:16 and 17, it says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of Elohim, that man is unable to find out the work that has been done under the sun. For though a man labors to seek, yet he does not find it. And even though a wise one claims to know, he is unable to find it. What do you think about those passages, Eric?
3: Well, I, I
0: found the first one kind of intriguing as I was kind of preparing for this uh podcast. Who who knows how to explain a thing? And um uh, mm-hmm as you know, we get into talking about Van Til and presuppositionalism, which mainly started with uh, Cornelius Van Til, uh, one of his students, K. Scott Oliphant, was distinguishing between archetypal knowledge and ectypal knowledge. And one of the things that he said is that, you know, the, the knowledge that we get is all communicated to us by God, and, and God kind of has to talk to us kind of in baby talk, you know, and he has to dumb everything down so we can understand the knowledge that, that he has because he doesn't grow in knowledge. So
3: mm-hmm.
0: what kind of stood out to me, and that's called ectypal knowledge, the communicated knowledge, but you know, mm-hmm. but how it, it kind of goes to that idea of special revelation. How do you explain what's been revealed to somebody that's never experienced that special revelation and and then what you know there's some questions around special revelation, you know, like what, um, you know, how do you know it's from God? And, and how do you um, explain that the revelation is valid? I mean, what what are the criteria that makes revelation valid? So those are questions that we can kind of pursue uh, later on. I think there's a,
3: that's
0: the great thing about the Bible is, you know, somebody like Solomon can say very little and then it says a lot.
3: So, oh, yeah.
2: Well, kind of. My history with this is uh, I took a logic class in uh, college, and it was an elective. I didn't really know what to think of it, you know, going into it. Uh, And basically, it ended up being my favorite class I've ever taken in my entire, you know, school career. Um, I actually failed it the first time. (laughs)
3: <laughs> and it,
2: it wasn't because like you know I, I wasn't showing up or like the usual stuff. It was because like it genuinely like I was not mentally. I did not expect this class to like challenge me intellectually. You know, there's no other mm-hmm. class that had ever done that. You know, in the public school system. You know what I mean?
1: Oh yeah. And this class,
2: this class, man. I mean, it's it's no. I mean, logic's no joke. So I. No. I uh, failed it pretty heavily, pretty hard the first time. And then over the summer, I took my logic textbook and I literally went through the whole thing. Like with a notebook, wrote everything down, went through every uh, you know, example, did every uh, problem in the book. And then I retook the class again and I basically got the best grade in the class. Like I became obsessed with this subject.
0: Yeah uh, most
3: important. important. I
0: mean it's, yeah. just, it's and and there's so many other things that sprout from that. You know, there's epistemology and theology and philosophy and there, and mm-hmm. people don't realize how complicated it can be. I mean it's not it's not for the guy that's you know, rolling a, uh, uh rolling a cigarette in the corner and just philosophizing into the air, you know. <laughs> it's, uh,
2: it's, yeah, no. Uh, it's, not much, at all. it's more
0: intellectual yeah. than that, you know.
2: Well, so yeah, it it became a passion of mine. I've been studying it ever since. You know, outside of outside of school. Well,
3: I'm done with. Yeah, and you're I'll
0: you're think. a lot better at that kind of stuff than I am too. I mean, I've studied it in the past, but I'm a lot yeah. older than you, and I've forgotten a lot. So when you start talking about ad hoc speculation and. Induction mm-hmm. and deduction, uh, you know. Yeah, that's, me. well, that's. Help an we got out, man, I, and define some of that for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, that's what I want to begin with is uh, defining some of those terms. So, let me see here. Hold on. Okay, so I could start off with, I guess we'll just start off with epistemology. So.
0: Oh, yeah, the simple one. Yeah, so
2: epistemology, this is just a definition from Merriam-Webster. It's, quote, the study of a theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. Okay, so basically in simplified terms, epistemology is just a theory of knowledge. Now, everybody has an epistemology, whether they realize it or not, or want to admit it or not. Uh, Basically, epistemology is just like your worldview. It's your your framework for interpreting reality you know yeah and but how uh, do you
0: know something
2: yeah yeah how do how do you know what you what you think you know right um and it's 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 a priori too it comes before you know it's it's assumed it comes before the evidence you know, right. you use it to interpret the evidence. See, this is what this is what people don't understand. This is what you realize when like you start studying logic. And a lot, of this is why a lot of people don't. They don't know this. People see. There's people out there that they think that facts. They think there's like these brute facts that exist out there, like
3: mm-hmm. that,
2: that just exist like without, you know, an interpretation. Just without interpretation, they just exist on their own, you know? But right. All, well, and, all, and people that have are, this... Yeah, Go all ahead. facts are interpreted. They have to be interpreted. And they're interpreted, right. you know, by your epistemology, according to your epistemology, your, your worldview, your framework of, you know what I mean, of interpretation. So... What were
3: you
0: going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, and and historically, there there were two really prominent uh, lines of thought around epistemology. One were the rationalists, like Plato, mm-hmm. who said that reason and logic were innate. It's something that, that we have as a consequence. They weren't even reasoning back to, you know, a creator or anything like that. Uh-huh. And then there were empiricists who said that the mind is basically like a blank slate, and everything we learn from birth is all based on experience.
2: Yeah, tabula rasa. And,
0: yeah. yeah. So So those two were the, the and they would kind of go back and forth and argue back and forth, and then um, you know, if you, I mean, you probably know as much about the history of uh, these lines of thought as I do. I can't give you every rationalist and empiricist, but that's those are the basics, and then you go on from there, and it becomes kind of a muddier mess with modern philosophy because, um, you know, you and I before the show we were talking a little bit of Immanuel Kant, who was kind of seen as the person that combined these two, uh, these two main streams, and but he was still left with when he created uh, what he called a leap of faith where you came to a point where you can't know certain things and yeah. you have to jump over this void and and make a leap and mm. um, and that's where i think modern philosophy is still at until we get into presuppositionalism and some of the other you know forms of apologetics that try to explain this leap so
2: okay well so basically when i was because I, I, I think I put more outside work into studying the material we were learning in this class than you know any other any of these other students that were there at least when I was there.
3: Uh-huh. So
2: I kind of I, I I kind of well I think God revealed these things to me too, but I, I discovered problems with uh, logic that were not being discussed in the class we're being kind of swept under the rug Mm -hmm. and uh, so I'll just define more terms here in order to elaborate what those problems are so you guys can understand so basically logic is divided into two, there's two different types of logic really, it's divided into uh, deductive logic and inductive logic now now A deductive argument, and here's just the direct quote right out of my logic textbook that we used. It's one in which the premises, which are the statements offered in support of the conclusion, are intended to guarantee the conclusion, which is the claim to be supported by the premises. Now, if the form is valid, then it is necessary that, if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true. Also, by virtue of its form, it is necessitated, or it has to be true. So, to give an example of of that, it'd be like your your first premise. You'd be like, all all trees are plants. Yeah, okay, that's your first premise. Your second premise would be like, a, you know, whatever example of a tree, or yeah whatever example of a tree a will just we'll just symbolize it with a it'd be like a is a tree, so then what would your conclusion have to be well it be yeah. it'd be a is a plant right right it would have to be a is a plant it's necessitated you see there's no there's no new information or new content being added from the premises to the conclusion. see how it's forced mm mm-hmm. mhm that the, the truth the the conclusion is forced by the premises, the truth of it. So that's deduction. Now the other, I guess school you could say, is, is inductive or induction. Now an inductive argument is, and here's just the direct quote again, one in which the premises are intended to make the conclusion probable without guaranteeing it. So an example of that It'd be like, all the swans I've ever seen in my life were white, therefore all swans are white. That, that'd that be an example of induction. Okay, so to give another definition that we're going to be using a lot throughout this is uh, presuppositions. Now uh, here's just the definition of those from Merriam-Webster. It's, quote, to suppose beforehand, to require as an antecedent in logic or fact. Now, presuppositions are your, your basically your base premises that make up your epistemology that are that are also a, a priori. They they come before the fact. They they have there's nothing supporting them outside of themselves. They're just assumed. You have to assume them to proceed with your argument okay you have to assume assume their truth do you understand that yeah yeah, they're just so basically uh in in deduction you you deduce from uh, i guess another another term that you could you could call them are just axioms and yeah. uh yeah they're they're basically well i actually have i think i have a definition of that too, let me see. Yeah, axiom. An axiom or postulate as defined in classical philosophy is a statement in mathematics often shown in symbolic form that is so evident or well established that it is accepted without controversy or question. Thus, the axiom can be used as the premise or starting point for further reasoning or arguments, usually in logic or in mathematics. The word comes from the Greek axioma, quote, that which is thought worthy or fit, or, quote, that which commends itself as evident. Okay, so the point of all that, defining all those terms, was basically I started to realize that um, in all deductive arguments, even though, you know, you you can have validity in in deductive arguments, you can have... uh, you can have validity as opposed to inductive, where you can only have, you know, quote-unquote probability. Uh, Your first premise in all deductive arguments is still assumed. And I just found this very revealing how, I mean, my logic textbook would just straight come out and just say this, you know. Your your first premise is always just assumed. And I just found it, I just found it, amazing that my, my logic, you know, we never talked about that in class. Like that was never, that was never something we talked about, you know?
0: Yeah. I just found found that amazing. Starting point. And that's, that's something I wanted to, you know, maybe have you clarify because presuppositional apologetics doesn't like really arise out of logic. It's kind of like a philosophy that, um, Says that logic stems out of <laughs> presuppositionalism.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, but do you, is that the way you understand it too?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, because kind of the point of what I was getting at is all deduction presupposes that there is an absolute standard of truth. Okay. Because the the, pre, the first premise is always assumed with no no other premise supporting it outside of itself it's got no basis outside of itself i mean it's just assumed to be true mm-hmm. so it, deduction itself presupposes some sort of standard of truth right with with not with, with nothing supporting it outside of itself it's just assumed you you have to assume that there's this standard of truth that exists in order to proceed with any deduction right yeah, I mean,
0: and this is and this is what the uh you know the the rationalists and the empiricists were were struggling with is how what is the absolute you know because they recognized that there was an absolute so how do you how do you arrive at the absolute and what is that absolute and and how do you reason back to it you know
3: mm-hmm. because they
0: they understood that That there had to be an absolute and that's what's kind of funny about modern uh i would say layman philosophers people you see on the internet because they think that somehow uh there are no absolutes that whatever you believe is is valid you know it's all relative and so the first question i ask somebody like that is okay if it's always relative if uh there are no absolutes isn't Always being relative, then you know, are, is, are you saying it's absolutely always relative?
3: You know yeah, I, I mean? know. See, <laughs>
0: so yeah. it's, it's a self-defeating argument, and and philosophers realize this, and I don't think, and I'm eleven yeah, too. Yeah, you mean, see how they violate they, they violate,
2: they violate yeah. the law of non-contradiction. Right. Okay? It's an actual law, and if you deny the law of contradiction, you actually affirm it because right. by denying it, you 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 contradict yourself. See what I mean? Yeah. You actually affirm yep. the law. So where? Right. What are? Where do these laws come from? Because, yeah. you know, and all, and if if you're going to use any any logic, deduction or induction, you have to presuppose these laws. These laws right. are a priority. They come before the argument, before right. all the evidence. Before so all. So the question is: Are we
0: just recognizing? and making them up to define a chaotic universe? Or are these things non, uh, unviable or un, um,
2: uh, yeah, unviable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so that they are, you can't violate them.
2: <laughs> right. Right.
0: Uh, so that, uh, they are endemic in, in the whole universe, you know, or, or Are we just making them up? And that's the—I think—that's the argument that the atheist makes. You know, so we'll, we're just—you know—making conventions to explain a chaotic world. That's—that would be their explanation. But we'll see that in a little bit why that doesn't work because, yeah, um, there are some really strong arguments against that just being convention.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm gonna read something here. I'm gonna find. Just gotta find it first. So I kind of want to go over. Uh, basically, I, I did a thesis. I, it was actually in another. It was in a, well. It was, a, it was a actual. It was a speech outline in a in my speech class. I did uh-huh. in school, but it was on basically induction and uh, how all induction is formally fallacious. Um, And this is kind of how I, this was kind of my road to discovery, discovering presuppositionalism, is first I figured out that induction is just completely useless. It it just absolutely, you can't drive any knowledge whatsoever out of induction. And it also amazes me how this is not discussed in logic class, even though, I mean, it literally, basically, the logic book tells you that, Induction can never guarantee the truth of the conclusion. It just ma- it just makes it "quote unquote" probable. You
3: see yeah. that, okay, right? Well, and, and,
0: and my limited knowledge of logic is there's there's valid arguments in the way they're constructed, not in whether they're true or not. So validity right. doesn't mean true.
2: But validity only can only has to do with deduction.
0: Oh, really? Okay.
2: Yeah, because validity is literally defined. Well, let, let me. I'll just read it here. A valid argument is a deductive argument in which the premises succeed in guaranteeing the conclusion. An invalid argument is a deductive argument in which the premises fail to guarantee the conclusion. Right. More formally, a valid argument is one in which it is necessary that if the premises are true, then the conclusion is true.
3: Right. Which
2: well, well, what
0: I, what I'm discussing is it doesn't, it doesn't state it doesn't give any indication that it's universally true. It's it's just it makes the argument valid, and it's a true argument, not that the, not that the conclusion is truth. Does that make sense? All right, all
2: right. Yeah. It says nothing about the the truth values of the statements themselves. Exactly. But but if you do have uh, uh, true premises. It follows necessarily that you would have a true conclusion if you reason validly. You can't have true premises and a false conclusion if you reason validly. I believe that is correct, if I'm remembering right. Um, Yeah, you can't have a valid argument with true premises and a false conclusion. That's true.
1: Let me let me read more. Yeah, it says... Uh, third,
2: suppose an argument is valid and has a false conclusion. Must it then have at least one false premise? Yes. If it had true premises, then it would have to have a true conclusion because it is valid. Validity preserves truth. That is, if we start with truth and reason in a valid fashion, we will always wind up with truth. See that? hmm Okay. So well, oh, where was I gonna go with that? Oh yeah, back to induction. So basically so okay, we've established that validity only has to do with deduction. Um, basically it's if you if you, if your premises are assumed to be true then your conclusion has to be true by necessity. Because that's the thing about deduction; it's an it's an if-then; it's a conditional. You see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's if this is true, then th- then this is true. It's a it's a forced conditional relationship. You see, it's necessitated. It's like a causal. It's almost like a causal link between the two. Right, and
0: that's kind of what I understood be- the difference between uh, induction and deduction is that deduction. Looks at a cause and and tries to seek an effect, whereas induction is induction. Uh, the
2: main difference looks at a fact and
0: raises to a cause.
2: Yes, yes. Induction. The main difference is there's inference involved.
3: Mhm.
2: And the problem is, is it's always it's always invalid. It's always unwarranted inference because the premises never guarantee the conclusion.
0: Mhm you're you're kind of always reasoning backwards to try and find the yeah. cause with, so with no certainty that 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 the cause um, is effectual and this and this touches science too cuz that's kind of what the scientific method is it's all based on induction really it,
3: it,
2: it is and you never hear that discussed either <laughs> no
0: you don't and you know i and and people that don't know me i mean you know i'm just a voice on a on a talk shoe right now but you know, my training was in biological sciences, and and you know they don't really discuss the philosophy of the scientific method, or they just do so briefly. So they never really get into, you know, the limits of the scientific method and how constrained uh, what you can derive from an experiment really is. You know, and and the modern yeah. philosophies right now, or not well, not really philosophies, but the modern layman that's hearing all these atheistic philosophies that are backed by quote-unquote science, they don't understand how limited that scientific method actually yeah, they're, is. Yeah, they're, utter, they're
2: utterly ill-equipped because logic is not taught in, in school. They mm-hmm. have no idea about any of these issues. I mean, I just took an introduction to logic class, and, like, I, I, I learned all this from that. I saw all right. these problems, you know what I mean? Yeah. If people would just understood the basics of deduction and induction, they would be able to see this stuff. I mean, it just amazes me how that was an
3: elective. <laughs> yeah. Like well, these are the these are
2: the methods by which you use to think, okay? Logic. Right. You either use deduction or induction. Those are the only two methods by which you can use to think, you know? And that's not even that's not required in school.
3: <laughs> I mean, that's just
2: That's pretty baffling,
3: don't you think? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So and we should also distinguish, I mean, because we kind of jumped right in and just started about logic, but um, people should know that logic, it covers a lot of ground because usually logic is concerned with argumentation and classification of arguments, but it can also be used in a mathematical sense where yes. you know and that's where that's where you know when I took a course on logic uh it was mostly centered around arguments and what makes a valid argument and what's a fallacious argument but that's there is a, it, yeah. uh, a course in logic that and that's probably one you took where it's like you know more mathematical where it's uh a and b uh you know
3: equals <laughs> c that, and, gr- you know, that grows
2: out of it because math is based on the laws of logic Mhm yeah, I, 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 I later on I went into symbolic logic, and that's what that was. You you just symbolize, you know, like logical arguments with with you know letters, and then it's it looks it literally looks like a mathematical equation. Right, and, I, and I should
0: have been like a little that, bit more yeah. clear because there's a cause what we were talking about was more of informal argument, and then uh, there's a symbolic logic that is more you know. Based in, in mathematical, and there's a mathematical logic too. But um, you know, there. So if you go into study logic, you're in for you know a mind blower because it's not just you know learning. No. Okay, well this is a circular argument. That, that's just yeah. a very you know mm-hmm. s- small small portion mm-hmm. of what what is there. Um, it's it's well, a field of study all itself really.
2: The main point, though, is that all those later things, they build upon these...
1: These, these premises.
2: Yeah, these foundational concepts.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, which they don't even... Which people don't even know because they don't teach them. Right. But... So, back to the scientific method and induction. Uh, here's another thing people don't realize. Um Induction is always formally fallacious because it's always invalid. We establish that because the premises never necessitate the conclusion. And they also, well, it's also uh, formally invalid because it commits the formal fallacy known as the affirming the consequent fallacy. Uh And I'm just going to read that right out of the textbook here. Fallacy of affirming the consequent. Now here's here's the fallacy in uh, symbolized. So, one, if A, then B. That's your first premise. Two, B. Three, or, so, three, A. To show that this form of argument is fallacious, consider the following counterexample. One, if lemons are red, then lemons have a color. Two, lemons have a color. Three, so lemons are red. Okay, so... Basically, the fallacy of affirming the consequent, it goes like this. If this is true, then that is true. That is true, therefore this is true. And this literally is what the scientific method is based upon. To give you an example, it'd be like, if Darwinism is true, then we should observe homology in species. We do observe homology in species, therefore Darwinism is true. Another example, if gravity is true, then when I drop this cap, my water cap that I'm holding, it should fall to the ground. I dropped it and it fell to the ground, therefore gravity is true. The problem with this is is the premises do not necessitate the conclusion. There could be an infinite number of other explanations for why this cap fell, or why, you know, there's homology in species,
3: Mhm. You see that? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So they never they never talk about that either, but that's literally that's the scientific method. So we see how that collapses in upon itself.
1: Um So back to my
2: speech outline that I gave on induction. And basically, this is this is actually called the fallacy of induction. Like, there's actually, like, this is this is this is called this is actually a known fallacy. It's called the fallacy. What, do, of the what induction. did your
0: professor think of your uh, your paper?
2: My speech professor. Yeah. Oh, dude, he was he loved me, man. He, like, <laughs> he was. I blew his mind, dude. He actually like seriously asked me if I was like gonna gonna go into more schooling, like at, uh-huh. at at the end of the class, you know. I think he, he wanted me to because he was, like, so impressed with me in that class.
0: I, to, I keep encouraging you to do that, man. I think you should.
2: Yeah. But, so anyway, uh, I said, what is the fallacy of induction and how is it committed? So I first said that there's no way to deductively justify induction itself, which there isn't. You can only justify induction inductively. So it's it's circular. Um, Like I said, it's it's always formally invalid. There's no way... You you can't deduce... You know, you can't deductively justify induction. Do you understand that? Yeah. Okay. Now, all induction relies upon the presupposition that you can, quote, infer truth. Um, Now, people will try and argue, and they'll say... Well, this is how we know induction is true. It's by our observations, right? Right. Well, the observations themselves do not establish the validity of inductive reasoning except inductively. So it's circular. Because the observations do not necessitate induction. You see that? You understand that? give me an example. Okay, well, observations... They're are particulars, correct? Right. Can a particular ever establish an absolute? I don't believe so. Well, there you go. You understand now?
0: Yeah, well and this is the type of reasoning I use with with people that uh want to deny
2: Well I well hold on, hold on. Let me let me just okay. say one more thing to make it more simple. So
3: Induction. Sure,
2: in induction, to, to simplify it even further, you're going from a particular to an absolute.
3: Right. See I that. Know.
2: Whereas yeah. in deduction, you're going from an absolute to a particular. Now, the thing yeah. about the thing about that is the particular in your dedu- in your deduction is inclusive within the absolute. So there's no new content or information being added from your premise to your conclusion. See that.
3: Yeah, For, There's no there's oh, no
2: see. unwarranted inference being made between the two. Whereas in induction, you're trying to use a particular to establish an absolute. You're trying to use a small sample to establish a, a general conclusion from that small sample. You see that?
0: Yeah, and there's and an, un- what there's an unwarranted find. inference. I, mean, I think it's interesting what you're explaining because I think this is what you typically find when people try to or uh uh argue these moralities from anecdotal evidence well you know i i know these uh, this gay couple and they're very loving to each other and why can't you just let them love each oh, other oh yeah and you know? and then, and then the, <laughs> yeah. their moral absolute is well it's not hurting anybody um so you know that makes what they're doing okay and and this is the morality they create based on the induction, because what they're saying is, well, it, it's not hurting anybody in that instance, so therefore right? right it, the, the moral absolute is that homosexuality is okay.
2: Exactly, and, but uh, that's invalid, because your particular can never establish an absolute.
3: It's right. the
2: same, to put it another way, uh, to use other terms that... Mean the same thing, so there's dis- descriptions and there's prescriptions okay uh-huh. a description you're just describing something that is right a prescription a prescription is something that ought to be or should be it's an absolute it's a universal see that
1: right can a
2: description ever establish a prescription? No no. No. Oh.
1: <laughs> I
0: didn't know. I thought you were talking rhetorically, I didn't know. You wanted me to answer?
2: Yeah, well well it was rhetorical but, but yeah, no. Well anyway, uh so to give you another example since you asked about the observations point, um so back to my swan example. So all the swans I've ever seen in my life are white. Therefore all swans are white. That would be that would be me using observations inductively. You see that? But is that yeah. valid? No. Another example. Here's what science does. Gravity has worked uh, all the times in the past that we've done it. it it's working right now. It works today. Therefore, it's going to work uh, in the future just like it's worked all those times in the past. So right. we're going to establish a law based on our particular observations about it. Is that valid? I used
0: to use that argument with my with my students. Uh, I would say, you know, because it was it, it applies to evolutionary arguments too, which is well, dinosaurs are extinct. Okay, so you went down to South America and you looked behind every tree and guaranteed that there wasn't like a little tiny, two foot, you know, uh-huh. foot tall dinosaur hiding behind a tree that you didn't observe. So how mm-hmm. can you make that categorical statement? No, you, you can't. Know, it's based on induction again. You know, it's just. Yep. Now, Particularly, generally, most people would say yes. In my observation, the observation of most people on the planet is that dinosaurs are extinct. But that's not in every case if you get into cryptozoology. So,
2: right. Um,
0: that leaves so, the question open.
2: Yep. So my next point that I went into was one cannot hold that nature will continue to be uniform. And this is another... This is another one of the unspoken presuppositions that these people have that you, this is never discussed either. They have the presupposition that uh, nature is uniform. There's this uniformity in nature, right? And this, 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 this is this is a foundation of induction. You know what I mean? Right. Because it, it presupposes that nature is going to be uniform, but there's no way to establish that inductively. So it's just circular. Right. See,
3: well, like you're back, to right gra- now, back, to,
2: back to the gravity example. So, just because gravity's worked the same way in the past, all those times in the past, and it's worked the same way today, that means it's going to work the same way in the future. Right. But that's how that Where, inference isn't necessitated. See that?
0: What guarantee do you have
2: of that? Right. Because exactly. How do you know that nature is going to remain uniform?
0: You You're only have that, that through the presupposition of a Christian God, that's the only thing you have, yes, so, yeah. so and 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 this is what this is the heart of Van Til's argument. We can get into a little bit of history of Van Till because I think that's important to understand what presuppositional apologetics is, but um but that's the heart of it right there is that you can't know the consistency of these laws or the uh, of nature, you know. The laws of nature being the same today as they are going to be tomorrow, you can't guarantee the existence of anything. You can't. Uh, the sun's going rise in, tomorrow. You can't know
2: them inductively. Exactly. To clarify, um,
0: and you you can't you have no basis to say that those things are going to continue.
1: No. Nope.
0: Um, and that that's the that's the problem with any other form of. Um, World view, really.
2: Any other philosophy, um, any other epistemology, yep. Yep,
0: yeah, especially epistemology. Mm. And because,
2: uh, and, and and this
0: is really what presuppositionalism uh, teaches, because presuppositionalism ties very nicely in reth- with Reformed theology for, for a couple reasons, okay? Because we mentioned archetypal knowledge and ectypal knowledge, which is archetypal, just to repeat, is, basically the knowledge that God has in his being. We can't know that. It's just kind of assumed that he has knowledge that we don't have because he's God. He knows everything. He doesn't grow in knowledge. He just knows everything. Right. And then there's the archetypal knowledge, which is the knowledge that he is trying to communicate to us, but that has to be uh, kind of dumbed down because he can't communicate his archetypal knowledge perfectly. That's, you know, he has to kind of reveal to us what, what he wants us to know. And then there's this idea, the third concept is this relational knowledge, it, which is our understanding of what he is communicating. And that's where the some of the flaws lie. But what the Bible communicates is that there are different modes that he communicates this relational knowledge. One is through the creation. And that's what you're talking about right now is that through these, consistent laws and the constancy of of uh, nature and physics, that we see God in creation, and that that is what the atheist is faced with every day, is this organization and co- constancy in creation. And that was what formal apologetics was really based on uh, before presuppositional apologetics. I mean, they had Uh, you know, the argument from creation and and these classical kind of of arguments. And then also the idea of special revelation, which is, you know, that God actually wrote these things down through people for us to, to know. So there's this kind of this empiricist and this rationalist part. You know, one is that he does it through experience, and what he wrote down, these propositions that he's written down for us, but also through this innate nature we have to recognize a God in his creation. So, you know, and I think that maybe that's what Kant was getting at, is that that he has given us both these methods to experience him and to learn uh, about himself uh, through these two modes, that makes yeah,
2: kinda kinda of, kind of to comment on that a little bit, uh, I would kind of disagree. Uh well I, I would clarify what I what I at least what I believe on that. I believe that God can't reveal the totality of his knowledge to man for obvious reasons. Yeah. But he can what he does reveal to man, it can have the exact same meaning between what he intended and what man understands about what he revealed. So like when God said to Adam Adam and Eve, uh, don't eat this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Right. Like, Adam and Eve could understand that meaning of what he said in a, in a univocal way between, you know, God and, and them. Like, it yeah. had the same meaning between them both. There wasn't some, they there wasn't some faulty understanding on their part where they couldn't they couldn't grasp it because no, God is so I don't big. I think that's and, what the
0: Reformers were saying. I think yeah, they were distinguishing I mean, between, okay, so there's a level at which no man has any conception of what God knows, and then mm-hmm. he is trying to communicate, or, or he is communicating a certain level of that knowledge that we can never know, mm-hmm. and they're distinguishing between him communicating that and then... Us receiving it, so it's not that we don't understand it or even that it's um you know garbled in its message, but yeah. they're just they're just distinguishing it like good theologians do they're just drawing a a small distinction between the communication and the communicate the communicate you know? I mean,
3: to kind
2: of further illustrate I guess that um, would be like, how does your child understand?" what you're saying to it when you're when you're teaching it language.
3: Mm-hmm. Like how does
2: a child ever learn how does it ever pick up on on language? How does a child ever learn language from its parents? Yeah. I mean, how does it ever how does it ever pick up that the sounds that its parents are making like relate to these this this universal meaning behind it, you know what I mean? Mhm and actually how does it, how does it learn that I mean wouldn't wouldn't that indicate that there is some absolute standard that exists outside of uh, outside of man but also within man and it's it's you know it's it's presupposed by him and it has to be in order for there to be any meaning but
3: Right, there's um, like a
0: pre-program so yeah, that you like, can understand the there forms these, and the of
3: forms. Yeah. There's
2: these innate forms that God created, like one yeah. of them would be language within man, you know what I mean? Right. And uh, they're like in the form of propositions, you know, they're actually, like, they're, these universals are abstractions, but they actually exist in the mind of God as propositions. You see right. that? yeah.
3: Let me give you an example
0: yeah. of the difference between ectype and relational as far as I understand it. I think what they're trying to say is, okay, God is communicating, let's say he's communicating a general understanding of his existence through creation, okay?
3: Uh-huh.
0: And, but not everybody picks up on every nuance of that. I may look at a leaf and see the organizational structure of that and know that there is a creator behind that somebody else may not experience it the same way. They they look at, you know, the sun rising and setting every day and and think back to what we were just talking about and recognize there has to be a consistency there given by a creator. So their understand so God's still communicating uh, kind of a piece of his knowledge in different ways, but, this, but the different creatures are not picking up on the same thing. I think that's... Yeah. Kind of what they're talking about is, mm-hmm. you know, that it's a relational, which makes it specific to the creature. Mm-hmm. I could be saying oh, that wrong, but I think I but I think that's the gist of it. So
2: I kind of want to get back to my induction.
0: Sure, go thing.
2: ahead. Um, just so the l- lay people listening really get this, but uh, so so. We established that they ha- they hold in the presupposition the nature the uniformity of nature uh, it's a, it's completely unwarranted and they have no way to justify it inductively because it's invalid and circular. So we establish that. Well, the, well, they'll they'll try to defend that. Well, this is kind of how they defend it. It's quote the future will be predicted by the past because the past is predictive of the future. We see how that's totally circular. Yeah. Um. They also hold to the presupp- presupposition that there is even, that there's truth to be had in the first place.
3: Right. It's the thing about
2: all, all logic. Like I said, deduction, it, it presupposes that there's, there's tr- there is truth.
3: See what right. I mean? There's
2: this absolute standard of truth that's a priori. It comes before all logic. It has, actually has to precede logic. You can't argue from logic and get to truth. You have to argue from truth. Just to get to these laws of logic, just to get to logic, you see that? Yeah. yeah. Well, and this
0: is what this is what Van Til was trying to show, and, and this is actually the criticism of Van Til, which is also his strength. He's saying all reasoning moves in a circle, and that's that's yeah. how because he recognized that he recognized that somebody was going to come along and and criticize him because he's saying, well, God exists, therefore there's reason. And then we try to comport reality with this reason and that shows us that God exists. But he's saying that everything revolves in a circle like that. It's not fallacious. It's just, it it just is because that is uh, the extent of our ability to get at that knowledge of God. And Mm -hmm. uh, so, but that's also a criticism. They're saying that... uh, and, I, you know, I, I, I think I told you earlier I was listening to an Archie Sproul where he, he was showing this criticism and he's saying that, that, that classical apologetics is trying to say, well, you know, we are – rationality is assumed and uh, therefore we can, uh, you know, move from rationality on. And, and it was kind of funny because he was saying that. I was thinking, okay, but how do you assume rationality without – Assuming somebody gave you that rationality, you know what I mean. It always takes it back to Van Til's argument, and he, I think he had a hard time explaining it without refuting
2: well, himself. He did. I it mean, was
3: kind of how funny. could yeah. he
2: possibly? I, I it's just bizarre how he could even criticize him on that point of circularity when all arguments reduce to circularity. You, yeah, you, it's just there's there's unjustified circularity and there's justified circularity. Right. And the only the only justified circularity is if you have this omnipotent and omniscient deity that revealed, you know, certain axioms to you or knowledge to you, and then you deduced from those axioms.
0: I think where people like Spool are are straining at Nats here, what they're saying is, is they're assuming a starting point and then proceeding that doesn't assuming it doesn't assume God exists. It's just it's a starting point and then it proceeds linearly to the conclusion that God exists. But but you know, it it's still it's still a problem because you're still assuming at a certain point in, in your logical argument. So, you know, he's saying you're like for instance, he he's been accused of uh assuming the autonomy of self when he's saying, well, okay, maybe I'm assuming autonomy of self, but then I'm proceeding linearly to the conclusion that God exists. And then I realize I don't have autonomy of self. So um, he's saying that is not reasoning in a circle. And I think Van Til would come back and say, well, those assumptions have underlying foundations and those have to be considered. Then you would be reasoning in a circle. So,
2: you know, well, I mean, he's using the laws of logic in all of his arguments. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's... How can he know anything? How can he justify any knowledge whatsoever?
3: Right.
2: I mean, it all comes back to the same... There's only one thing that solves this. You know?
3: Right.
0: Now, just, just for people listening, I think, just for a second here, Chris, um, and I'm not trying, trying to derail you, but uh, people should know that uh, uh, Cornelius Van Til came out of Westminster, and, and he, you know, we should give some recommendations on, on reading material, and one of them that I don't actually recommend is actually, unless you have some knowledge already of philosophy and logic and, and theology, is picking up a book on Van Til and just diving in. Van Til, uh, according to one of his um uh students uh, who I've heard speak several times, and his name's Kay Scott Oliphant. He's out of Westminster also. Uh, he would probably say, don't just... Die. And that's what he did. He said, you know, he went to a bookstore and waited a month and bought a book before there was Amazon or anything like that. And he just dove right in, and he he there was nobody to explain... What Van Til was talking about, even the professors he had access to, were like, "I don't know what he's talking about." So he yeah. joined a seminary and met Van Til himself, and was trained for, for uh, by Van Til to understand Van Til. <laughs> so uh, he yeah. said, "That's what it took for him to understand." And 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 through studying under him, he came to realize that what Van Til was talking about, uh, I, I guess uh, Van Til went to Princeton. And was studying uh, under or studying the philosophy of idealism because that's all they had at that point, and how similar idealism was with um, Christian theology, but how inadequate it was. And so, what he did in his dissertation is he wrote on idealism and pragma- pragmatism and used the language of idealism. To explain to idealists why their ideas were wrong, and so he he says that's why Van Til is so hard to understand. And uh, but, he, but his, the basics of his dissertation was really the birthing of presuppositionalism, because in there he says you can't justify prag, pragmatism or idealism, no, uh, be, because they're basic. Uh, position of absolutes is, is incorrect, and you can only get that through Christian philosophy. That was his position.
2: I, uh, reveal and, the theology.
0: Right, and, and it can really be reduced down to um, and may, maybe this is an oversimplification, but the relative is dependent on the absolute. And you, you always go back to that. You can't have relative truth. Uh, you can't have really um, these little subjective truths people want to try to, you know, come up
3: with.
2: Well, that was uh, another thing I actually uh, talked about in my my speech outline was I said that because induction, you know, you go from a small sample
3: to mm-hmm. establish
2: a, a general, like a theme about that small sample, you know, a general, a, you go from a small sample to establish a general, like, category, right or a general true statement about a whole category or class of things from just a small sample you know what I mean the problem with that is is in order to uh, in order to know if the sample is representative of the whole, you have to already know the whole right see that
3: yeah, exactly
2: <laughs> you have to. You can only reason from the whole, you, validly, you can only reason from the whole to the particular or the sample. You can't reason from the sample to the whole. It's always right. an invalid, an invalid inference. See that? Right. Yeah.
3: Now, what, what I was
0: going to say about, uh, the very end there about Van Til, is if you want to understand Van Til, I recommend listening to people like K. Scott Oliphant or Greg Bonson. I, I and was-
2: I was going to mention Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson is excellent. I would definitely recommend him.
0: Yeah, uh, and and I would get books on Bonson before I would buy something by Van Til, mainly because yeah. Bonson understands Van Til, but he
2: he communicates he takes it down, a far, yeah, a far yeah more, to the level
0: of
3: yeah
0: of a layman, yeah, and that's really what is practical for most people is understanding how presuppositional apologetics can really be used to help gird up your faith and combat some of these uh, modern secular arguments that are really not very good. But they sound good, and they're repeated so often. Um, but with a little study and a little bit of uh, working it out on your own, you can use these arguments to great effect to yeah. you know defend the faith. And that's really what apologetics is all about.
2: Mm-hmm. So I'm going to take it back again.
3: <laughs> I'm sorry. That, I'm, I'm, to not, I'm trying to be
2: real. It's all right. I'm, I'm actually almost through it now. But So uh, another point I raised was, there's, this is another actual fallacy. It's called the naturalistic fallacy. It's also known mm-hmm. as the, the is-ought fallacy. Uh-huh. And it goes back to, you know, the descriptions versus the prescriptions again.
3: Uh-huh.
2: Now, I actually wrote, yeah, a descriptive is or an are versus a prescriptive should or not, mm-hmm. okay? Simply describing something that happens, uh, I mean, I'm using the gravity example in this, in this. Simply describing something that happens like gravity not only does nothing to say why it happened, but does nothing and can do nothing to say why it should happen. You see that?
3: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: So,
2: another example. So just because the sun came up today and all my days in the past does not mean it ought or should come up tomorrow and there is no reason for it to unless we've already presupposed a uniform nature that we can provide no justification for inductively outside of a circular one or we just assume it's true and that's the way it and that is the way it is and take it on faith, which is what they do. Yeah. So now another another now to address the claim even even my logic textbook make makes that in, in, induction can give you probable knowledge this is this is extremely dishonest that my the lot my logic textbook would say this because if you investigate this 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 doesn't hold up either let me just read this so to address the quote probability defense. I'm going to quote uh, an actual logician. This is a this is a guy I would recommend. You probably haven't heard of him. His name's uh, Vincent Chung.
0: Nope.
2: He's probably one of my favorite authors uh, on this subject. He's written a few books on it. Uh, I have two of them. One of them's called Ultimate Questions. That's really the one where he really focuses on presuppositionalism. is very good. It's where this quote's going to be from. And then I have another one that's just systematic theology. It's just like, you know, is theology, etc. Okay. uh, So he talks about the probability uh, claim here. He says, Some people try to rescue induction by saying that, Although it cannot conclusively establish any proposition, At least it can establish a proposition as, quote, probable. But this is both misleading and false. Probability refers to, quote, the ratio of the number of outcomes in an exhaustive set of equally likely outcomes that produce a given event to the total number of possible outcomes. Even if we grant that empirical and inductive methods can discover the numerator of the fraction, although I deny that they can even do this, to determine the denominator requires knowledge of a universal, and omniscience is often necessary, though it is necessary, to establish this. Since probability consists of a numerator and a denominator, since the denominator is a universal, and since empirical and inductive methods cannot know universals, then to say that induction can arrive at, quote, probable knowledge is nonsense. Even apart from other insoluble problems inherent in empiricism itself, an epistemology that is based on an empirical principle cannot succeed, since empiricism necessarily depends on induction, and induction is always a formal fallacy. On the other hand, deduction produces conclusions that are guaranteed to be true if the premises are true and if the process of reasoning is valid. Although rationalism is less pro- popular, it is a tremendous improvement over empiricism because it reasons using deduction instead of using empirical and inductive methods. But still, rationalism cannot succeed in establishing a true and coherent worldview, and we will briefly. Okay, and then he goes on. We will briefly examine some of its problems. Rationalism selects a first principle, or as in geometry, begins with one or more axioms and deduces the rest of the system from it. If the first principle or presupposition is true, and the process of deductive reasoning is valid, then these subsidiary propositions or theorems would all be true by necessity. A main problem with rationalism has to do with how it selects a first principle. If the first principle is self-contradictory, then of course it must be rejected. But even if the first principle is not self contradictory, it must also be self justifying to avoid the charge of being arbitrary. Yeah, there it is. (laughs) (laughs) That's devastating, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's no way to get around that.
3: Trying to look something up here.
2: Well, that's basically the crux. Uh, well, I mean, even of deductive arguments, because, well, hold on, <laughs> this, this this go this comes to the issue of the infinite regress. So I have a little excerpt here. I'm going to read on this. So it says, uh, any belief that you hold to must boil down to our our belief system or simply our ultimate authority. This can be explained with equations or simply letters. Take any of your beliefs, grass is green, the sky is blue, etc., and let that be represented by the letter A. How do you know A is true? You would state because of B. How do you know B is true? I know because of C. Eventually, your knowledge claim must prove itself out. Let's say C is where your claim ends. If you can't prove C to be true, then you don't know anything at all. Your ultimate authority, your belief system, C, must prove itself out, and it will be a necessary and an unavoidable circular argument. When it comes to knowing anything at all, we must have all knowledge, or have revelation from somebody who does know everything. Otherwise, something could contradict what we think we know. No person has all knowledge, but people do know things to be true because they have revelation from God himself, who does know everything. This is how we solve the issue of an infinite regress which would make knowledge
1: impossible. Yeah. So You're still there, right? Oh yeah, I'm just Okay, here. okay. So he goes on, he says
2: oh, Well, he says no other belief system can make sense or justify knowledge. Only Christianity can make sense of it. God is the only being who can and has revealed. All other belief systems borrow the ideas from the Bible to argue against the Bible, which just shows they do know God in their heart of hearts. Proverbs 1:7, Romans 1:18 through 21. Now I will explain possible responses unbelievers may have about avoiding the problem of an infinite regress. If you haven't studied the fields of logic or logical fallacies, I would recommend studying these first because this gets slightly philosophical and could be difficult to grasp if you aren't familiar with them. I also point out that this isn't necessary to know. Just understanding the basics and the importance of circular reasoning with our ultimate authorities is necessary. Recently, I discussed how all of our beliefs must boil down to an ultimate authority or worldview, such as Christianity, atheism, Mormonism, etc., let any of your beliefs be represented by letters. How do you know A to be true? You know A because of B. How do you know B? I know B because of C, and eventually our belief must go back to whatever belief system we hold to, and it must prove itself out. So in this case, C must prove C, and it will be circular. Now I'm going to address two major logical fallacies that appear when people try to reject circular reasoning with their ultimate standards. These two specific fallacies are called begging the question and affirming the consequent. Begging the question is actually a form of circular reasoning. It's when you state a knowledge claim and your evidence for your claim is just a restatement of your claim. It's an assumption restated, and even though it is valid, it might not be true. When unbelievers try to avoid the infinite regress and get to their ending point, their ultimate authority, they will try to confirm their ending point C is true because it follows from B. The major problem here: is C is not your ultimate authority then because you proved it with something else, but not only that, you actually proved it with a belief you said follows from another claim you already stated, which is begging the question. Here is a real-world example of this fallacy. In the evolution belief system, it confirms there is a survival of the fittest, which is well known. Basically, it confirms that if a living organism survived, then it was the strongest of other life. They proclaim a creature survived because it was the fittest, and it was the fittest because it survived. This is exactly saying B proves C, and C proves B. Now, if they said it was the fittest or survived due to comparison of other species in other areas, the claim could possibly be continued on. But this is just an arbitrary assumption. Still, affirming the consequent is the second fallacy, which I will address, which appears in rejection of ultimate authorities. This fallacy can be slightly complicated to understand, along with other hey, similar. Hey
3: Chris, pause.
0: Pause yeah. for a second. Just put. Your, yeah. Yeah. I want to make a comment about that evolution example.
3: Sure. So,
0: the the other uh, part of that argument that's that's really tough on evolutionists is they'll make the claim that it's survival of the fittest. Okay, but that's a, that's assuming survivability. Okay, so if you right. have a bunch of proteins in a soup, there's no reason to survive. There's no life yet. So how do you get to a complex cell? This is what's never explained, and there is a discussion within. Neoplatonists, uh, I'm sorry, not Neoplatonists, Neo-Darwinists and uh, traditional Darwinists trying to say, well, okay, we're going to start from a complex cell and then work forward through mutation Uh, and um, natural selection. But you can't do that with origins because you're starting with atoms and chemicals and trying to reason towards life, but there's no reason... You see what I'm saying? There's no reason oh, yeah. for survivability, no reason yeah. for natural selection, and no reason for mutation when you don't even have a DNA code yet. So or <laughs> an RNA yeah. code. So it's it's really it's yeah. a ridiculous argument to reason from nothing to all life. It's yeah. And and there are there are evolutionists, I should say, that try to uh insert or or trying to distinguish between, um, you know, a complex cell to all life and then origins. But most evolutionists and atheists didn't do that and would even say origins were an important, uh, the origin of life is an important part of evolutionary theory. So there is a divide there and people should recognize that. Because I see the denial uh, with a lot of uh, evolutionists I talk to that origins is not part of evolutionary theory because they recognize that there's a problem there that they can't resolve. Yeah. So, go ahead. I mean,
2: that's another thing. It's like the survival of the fittest. He's just pointing out how, like, ambiguous. I mean, that's just so ambiguous. What does that even mean? They can't even define what it means without, without it being circular, you know, because it's like it's, it's the fittest because it survived. <laughs> right, you know? right, exactly. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I mean,
3: yeah. So let's see. And uh, you could you could look at any instance uh, of
0: that survivability too, because they're saying, "Well, fitness in this instance is because they had this quality," but you're but you see, you're still reasoning in a circle because it's still okay. Well, that's just. That only works in that circumstance. In other circumstances, it doesn't work.
2: Right. Right. So to go on about affirming the consequent, it says, A simple explanation of this fallacy is that it assumes there is only one explanation why a fact is true, and there could be more than one explanation for it to be true, and that may not be the case. Using the letters to explain ultimate standards goes like this. I know B is true, because if C is true, then it's a fact. C is definitely true, therefore B is true. The problem with this is that C isn't the ultimate authority here. The justification for C is the assumption B is the only possible explanation available when there could be another correct answer. In this case, C does not justify C, and that's the problem. I'm going to give another example with evolution to explain this fallacy. Evolutionary based worldviews proclaim that if there is similarity in DNA in all organisms, then evolution is true. The fact that there is similarity in DNA in all organisms proves evolution is true. Yes, this argument is right about similarity in DNA and it's a scientific fact. However, it's still a bad argument because it assumes there is only one explanation for this fact. The Bible has a great explanation for this fact about DNA. God said He created animals after their kind, so this makes sense in Christianity as well. So evolution isn't necessarily the only justification here. So yeah, that was the. He gave the same example I gave earlier about the you know the seeing homology in species. Right,
0: and and really the evolutionary argument boils down to that one fallacious argument right there. Um, because yeah. you see, it, every paper I've ever read, when well, you read himself, their conclusion, Darwin,
2: him, Darwin himself you, made that. <laughs>
3: what's that?
2: Darwin himself is the one who made that argument. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's literally a classic affirming the consequent fallacy. I think, I mean, I, I think I heard somebody say that he even like knew that and like he he admitted it or something. I don't. I don't know if that's true, but I know I know he, he definitely...
0: I've read a lot of evolutionary papers, and, and sometimes in their conclusion, you know, if you're looking at a, at a regular science paper, they'll have a discussion section and a conclusion section, you know. And yeah. they will say that, you know, this particular uh, conclusion can be drawn and no other inference can be made about... Um, Like this couldn't occurred in any other way than some evolutionary uh, mutation or something like that, you know? And yet I'm reading this and I'm going, I could name two other explanations right off the top of my head. They might be what you consider improbable or they might be um, far-fetched, but, But you're not even considering them because you've already got your mind made up that that is what is uh, the results of your paper, you know. And so they do this time after time after time. And people that write scientific papers aren't necessarily good philosophers. And uh, they engage in fallacious arguments all the time. um, But it gets published anyways as, quote, unquote, proof of evolution, you know. So mm-hmm. you can tear apart almost any evolutionary paper I've ever seen based on on those two fallacies you mentioned.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: So
2: yeah, so basically the point of talking about the infinite regress is this is the problem that deduction falls into. You know, it's all deductive arguments reduced to well, how do you know that your first premise is true?
3: Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right.
2: And unless you have a some sort of standard that you presuppose that's self-justifying, then your argument's always going to reduce to an infinite regress of, well, how do you know that? 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 And then knowledge right. is impossible. <laughs>
1: Right, and I think,
0: don't they call that the law of causality? I mean.
1: Yeah. That you either have an infinite uh,
0: re- re, uh, regression? regression or you have
1: an uncaused cause. Right. So yeah, let's um, see. Okay, I'm reading, reading here. I'll just read it real quick because this is what the law of causality is.
0: Is the law of identity applied to action? All actions are caused by entities. The nature of an action is caused and determined by the nature of the entities that act. A thing cannot act in in contradiction to its nature.
1: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, to bring up something else, um, people will claim
2: that but this is this is one criticism I've I've heard of presuppositionalism. People will charge it with the appeal to ignorance fallacy. Mm-hmm. You know that you know what appeal to ignorance is.
3: It's basically uh, you know if no, either I don't remember that one.
2: either this hasn't been proved wrong, therefore it's true, or oh, okay, or uh... there's actually two forms of it. Let me just go to it in my logic. Textbook here. Uh, yes, appeal to ignorance, ad ignorantium fallacy. Yes, involves one of the following: either a the claim that a statement is true or may it be reasonably believed true simply because it hasn't been proven false, or b the claim that a statement is false or may it be reasonably believed false simply because it hasn't been proven true. So they'll try to they'll try to. Detractors will try to criticize presuppositionalism and basically say that, well, since we can't know anything, which is what presuppositionalism asserts, you know, you can't know anything with certainty without revelation from someone who knows everything. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They'll say that, oh, well, you're making the appeal to ignorance fallacy then. See what I mean? Right. They're trying to say that that we're making that fallacy to validate that. Well, the problem is is that they cannot give an account for the universal, abstract, invariant laws of logic or on what basis they proceed with the assumption that they will hold. Right. Which we can, in our worldview, which is consistent, you see... So, uh, to read here, it says, In short, deniers will presuppose and employ the laws of logic in order to make such an accusation with no ability or basis within their worldview to give an account for such laws, which are intangible, immaterial, absolute, universal, and immutable, and their regularity and uniformity. Right. So to even make that charge against us, they have to presuppose the laws of logic which they can't account for, which we can't <laughs> <Right>. account for. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's just yeah. <sighs> So, yeah, it says... Uh, I'm, I'm, my looking point, up a, I'm looking up a fallacy. Go ahead. It says, uh, my point
2: is simply that if we are having a logical debate about worldviews, we must first be able to account for our ability to use logic according to our respective worldviews. If I allow you to use logic before you account for your ability to do so, then I lose the debate at the outset. Again, I never said that atheists cannot or that I will not allow atheists to use logic, simply that if I allow you to use it in a logical debate about worldviews without first accounting for it, for logic, then I lose the debate at the outset. Not only do I allow atheists to use logic as if it were up to me, but I demand that they use it when driving a car, when operating on me, when building my house, etc., (laughs) etc., Yeah, I mean, this is the point of presuppositionalism. It gets right to the. It, it cuts away all this evidence. See,
3: right. This
2: is the problem with apologetics is if it, it focuses on the evidence. Right. And they understand that all evidence has to be interpreted by by your worldview, which you assume before said evidence. So we. Yeah, I I agree with
3: that.
0: And I would we need also to qualify that. But go ahead.
2: Yeah, we need we need to focus on the foundational basis because if we if we get into a, an argument or a debate with an atheist ab- about evidence, it's never going to go anywhere. And in fact, we 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 pretty much just handed victory to the atheist because we we conceded a common ground with the atheist, and we we conceded exactly. their ability yeah we conceded their ability to use logic and to interpret the evidence correctly you see what i mean
0: yeah i do and so, I, I when i said i would qualify that what, one of the things that i have found very helpful and beneficial is um when you, when you do get into a discussion and you use the presuppositional argument and you go back to Uh, the assumption of rationality and the presupposition of a creator and their presupposition that there is not a creator, what always seems to come out of that discussion is a, a discussion around moral absolutes because they want to make the claim that they are just as moral as anybody else without recognizing that there's an innate and absolute morality that's that's built into um, built into us. I mean, in in a general sense, most people don't want to go out and murder their neighbors, you know, unless you're a psychopath or schizophrenic or something that has lost all touch reality. Not that all schizophrenics are homicidal maniacs, Um, but you know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's built into most people not to do those things. And there's also kind of this sense where uh, in a, in a sinful the way man is born into sin it is also built into us to do that, but God restrains us. So yeah. you know, how do you how do you take away that that ground that they are resting on and it and usually it revolves, revolves around the discussion of good versus evil. How do you define good? What do you consider good? And are there absolute goods and absolute uh evils, you know, things that are Always evil or always good, and because they like to borrow from the Christian worldview and say, Well, these things are good, and then you have to drill down why are they good? What is the basis for your goodness versus uh, my goodness? You know, because obviously, where we're disagreeing, especially with liberal social policies, is you are saying that this is good based on a lot of times induction, as we've been discussing. Because my experience is is that these things don't harm people and they make them happy and so and
2: that's um, another fallacy it's called the pragmatic fallacy
3: right it's uh right.
2: just because something works then that means that's the way it ought to be or should be
3: right okay. and that's,
2: there's a lot there's a lot of things that work out in nature like cannibalism and stuff i mean right the, that, does that mean, mean that yeah. <laughs> I mean, right and that, and, yeah. and, that,
0: and that goes into that epistemology discussion too, between pragmatism yeah. and monism and dualism and these different world views you kind of have to drill down and see where people are coming from mm-hmm. um, and but um uh, a lot of it comes through discussion what I'm saying is a lot of what what usually happens in my uh experience is that these people uh want to discuss morality and why we disagree on morality. And so you end up in that discussion asking for, for their basis on morality. And, and usually they have to appeal to societal norms and the benefit of society in general. And yeah. uh, so you have to be equipped to take that argument away from them and not allow them to have that. And, and there are different ways you could probably do that, just be creative. But one of the things that I I try to do is Drill it down to a hypothetical society that would have a a view of good and evil that's different than what they would say is good and evil. Like nobody's going to agree that rape is okay, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, if you have a hypothetical society where everybody is says rape is okay except for you, how are you going to condemn the other people in that society? I even break it down into like 10 people. Okay, you're the last 10 people on earth and uh, nine of them say rape is okay and you say rape is not okay. Well, what, what is your basis now of your morality that you're going to be able to tell these other nine that they're wrong and convince them they're wrong uh, from a societal viewpoint? You know, okay, if it's just majority rules, what's best for society? And they all think that that's good for society.
3: Yeah.
0: What, what, what are you left with? See, you're left with really poor basis for your morality. You have no basis for your morality is what it comes down to. I, mean, I think the, that highlights the discussion for them.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. All these worldviews reduce to the arbitrary. Exactly. It's and all so the arbitrary.
0: It's just yeah. a warm feeling you have that you think it's not okay. Whereas yeah. I have, you know, a revealed word of God. And I think that's what I'm getting at here is that okay, you can start with the presuppositional argument, but then I I usually move to a historical argument to show that there is a revelation that is historically documented and God has preserved that revelation. Um and you can use the creation argument too if you you know it kinda of depends on who you're talking to. But you know, the the historicity if if you study a little bit, studying the, the Bible, historicity yeah. of, of Christ and and how his life and teachings can be verified that mm-hmm. the resurrection and the the crucifixion are all verified historically, but not just myths that somebody just decided to write because they you know were copying the myths of Mithra or something like that you know this is zeitgeist kind of thinking
3: mm-hmm. and
0: um also to to establish that this is something objective outside yourself i I didn't make this up um and and you can verify these things historically that God has worked through history at preserving what he wanted to reveal to us ultimately culminating in his son Christ and so they can reject that but now you have not only a foundational basis for that belief system but you're giving evidence on top of it that there is a uh interaction between that creator and uh that we hypothesize because you could really the, I think the only failing of the presuppositional argument is you don't always have to reason back to the Christian God. You just react. You're just reasoning back to a creator who's rational and gives you um, uh, the basis for ra- rationality. Whereas breathing the you know, Christian God that. has to kind of conform to some evidence that, that, Christ is the true uh, culmination of that history. Does that make sense? You no, know,
2: I, have, I have thought about that, too. That is probably the greatest failing of it. But the thing about it is, is that I, I think it, it all just boils down to what I call coherency theory, uh-huh. which is whatever worldview is the most coherent, you know, and you 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 deduce from these presuppositions. Like, so, like you were saying, if if we presuppose the Bible is true, and we use that as our, you know, our justification for our presuppositions and our axioms, and then we deduce from those, will will it, will it be will it be a coherent? Right. You know what I mean, will it be a coherent uh, argument? You know. Yeah. And so to give an example like uh, if we if we presuppose the Bible is true so let's take one axiom from the Bible uh, man is totally depraved is that what we observe in everyday reality you know right. I would say that's I would say that's definitely confirmed by our everyday reality you know what I mean right. we live in a, we live in a fallen world I think that's confirmed by our everyday reality you know
0: um. You're still going to end up having to be specific about, you know, who Christ is and the historicity of Christ, because oh yeah, yeah, you know, because I mean, if you're, you could still reason to the Hebrew God and not, and not get to Christ. True. So true. That, that's that's my only point,
2: mm-hmm. is
0: that presuppositionalism doesn't necessarily lead you directly to Christianity. It just leads you to, um, yeah a creator that organizes the universe in a rational way, you know?
2: Right. Well, I would say one that also has to be omnipotent and omniscient, I would say those are, ne- those are necessary pre- co- preconditions yeah. uh, to establish, you know, universals and absolutes.
0: Well, and that's why I was all they also, fallacy. Well, I mean, I think also, you mentioned to me, Chris, this, argument of moderation where somebody's saying, well, okay, you know, God is, uh, omnipotent and, uh, omniscient, but they're putting qualifications on his omniscience. Like, well, he, well, he's not going to know a grasshopper hop to the left, uh, rather to the right, you know, as far as, uh, his determinism or his ability to know, foreknow all things. Um, and I, I find that to be an argument of moderation because you're just appealing to this middle ground. You know, you don't, you don't like the idea that nothing is predicted and you don't like the idea that everything is foreordained and foreknown by God. Mm -hmm. So you're going to, you're going to take this position that, okay, well, um, some things are foreordained, the important things, but not the little things. Well,
2: that's just totally arbitrary.
1: It's not only
0: arbitrary. It's it's a fallacious yeah. argument that's well yeah. known in logic. So, yeah, uh, I'm uncomfortable with those kind of appeals mm-hmm. to the middle constantly. And um, yeah, you, there's you, no justification as, as any, for doing uh, that. Any
2: determination of truth. Yeah, is um, there no justification for doing it? No, nope. I mean, I would say that that you could you actually could find that principle though in the Bible and. And I mean, it, 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 I would. I mean, is it an axiom though? Because Jesus did say the truth was in the middle, didn't he?
3: I don't, I don't know if he
0: ever said that. You have to give me the verse on that.
2: I think. Let me, well, let me look it up. Well, I'll, it,
0: it, the reason I bring it up is I was reading about it. <laughs> not because not it's that relevant, but it's. Uh, Vladimir Bukovsky points out that the middle ground between the big lie of Soviet propaganda and the truth is itself a lie, and one should not be looking for a middle ground between disinformation and information. According to him, people from the Western pluralistic civilization are more prone to this fallacy because they are used to resolving problems by making compromises and accepting alternative alternative interpretations. I kind of like that. So...
2: Maybe it's not because I'm not finding it here. So yeah, I guess I guess it's not how I thought it was, but
3: it I doesn't mean that the, it doesn't mean that there's
0: never a compromise between two views. But it doesn't.
3: Oh, I know that. It doesn't. Yeah.
0: It doesn't yeah. mean it, it's not an axiom to say No. because we have these two extreme views, there must be some kind of truth in the middle. That's not right. always going to be right. the case. And that's yeah, you can't, you
2: can't use it as any kind of standard. Um, no. No. Well, I was going to say I I think that I think that omniscience, total omniscience, and omnipotence is necessary because those are the only things that those are the only necessary preconditions that establish uh, like the laws of logic, for instance, um, and that justify them. Like, uh, so in your logic
0: class, Chris did did they go through like? here are the laws of logic because I, I've looked that up before and it seems like there are certain laws that everybody that says logic kind of hold to like the, um, um, what was the one we were talking about? Like, law A- yeah, the law of non-contradiction or the law of identity and things like that. Are there, did you guys in your class, did you learn like, okay, here are like the five basic laws of logic and, uh,
2: uh, I think, I think we learned the three, three basic ones. There's three basic ones. I'm pretty sure it's the law of, uh, non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, and then the law of identity. Okay. And then I think we, I think we kind of like discussed that there's these other laws that some logicians like put forth, but aren't really considered, you know, they're not, uh, they're not, uni- they're not, They're there's no consensus about them, you know, and, I mean, I, to me, the law of non-contradiction, I mean, obviously that that's, that's in the Bible, you know what I mean? Something, mm-hmm. something can't be A and not A at the same time. Right. Something can't be true and not true simultaneously.
3: Right. I mean, if you're, if you're
2: going to admit to that, then you, you would literally admit to absurdity, so... Right, and
3: I've
0: seen people trying to use uh, Schrodinger's cat as an example of the, uh, as an abrogation of the law of non-contradiction, as if the law of non-contradiction doesn't work because of Schrodinger's cat. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but.
2: I I know uh, about that, but I've never heard people try to argue that. (laughs)
0: I, I've actually heard people there. Well, and maybe this is because they don't understand the context of Schrodinger's cat, which is trying to, you know, uh, explain a, a concept in in uh, quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Um, and but they're trying to apply it to to logic. But I've, I have heard people use that, so I just didn't know if you had heard much about that.
2: Mm. No.
0: Might be something we want to look up and get into another time.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, one of the things I did learn from Greg Bonson, uh, is this, this myth of neutrality though, that, he's oh, yeah. saying that you,
3: you know,
0: uh-huh. I mean, first of all, we want in this modern day, we hear a lot of argumentation of both, uh, left and the right and conservative and liberal about well, how government should be neutral and nonpartisan and, yeah. uh, you know, things like police force. And and what I like about Greg Bonson is he points out the reality of that is that first of all, it's very arbitrary, and secondly, that the Bible doesn't teach neutrality. It teaches that if you're not elect, then you're an enemy in in your mind against uh, Jesus. Jesus
2: said, "If you're not for me, you're against me."
0: Yeah, well, it it comes from he read other passages too, Colossians one twenty one. And he, and it, where it actually says that your enemies in your mind against God, he's basically saying so you were, but now you're not, you know, kind of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's affirming that you were enemies in your mind against God before you, yeah. you know, before you came to God, and and uh, also says in Romans one eighteen through nineteen that they suppress the truth uh, through their. Um, I didn't write down the whole quote. I just said they suppress the truth through. Uh, but da da da. But I think it's like through their many uh, sinful actions or something like that.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, and so you know they're they're not only enemies, but they're also suppressing it, whether no, willingly or not. I mean, it doesn't matter in whether you're doing it with knowledge or not. Uh, you're doing it by nature. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's an interesting point to take because we're often asked as Christians to. Um, you know, not judge and be neutral and understand the other person's viewpoint. You know, and um, it's it, it's a it's it's kind of a war of the mind, really. Yeah, and uh, people don't want to pick up their their Bible and go to war. And I'm using war terms. I mean, obviously, it's not literal, but um, you're fighting a spiritual war. And uh, that's so. Greg Bonson. If, you, if anybody wants to look up Greg Bonson, uh, there's also a great debate I was going to recommend between uh, Bonson and this uh, guy named Gordon Stein, who's yeah, an I've heard,
2: I, I've heard that one. Yeah, that was really yeah, good. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I, I listened to it a long time ago, but it is a great debate, and Bon uh,
2: Bonson dominates. Oh, gee, he just destroys
0: yeah. Stein because yep. it, it shows. I think it shows the power of the presuppositional argument too, with even mm-hmm. the most well versed atheist on uh, how quickly their worldview collapses under somebody that kind of knows what they're doing um with yeah. the presuppositional argument
2: that's what I'm saying. they could have all of the supposed evidence in the world, and you just undercut all that by getting right to their foundation exactly
0: and yeah. I think from a um evangelical standpoint, you know it's not just about winning the argument, and that's why I think that you know you should be. Well versed in the historical arguments, too, so that yeah, it, if God is using you to uh bring that person to him, that you have uh the ability to do it, you know, and you're able to not only communicate your worldview but you're also willing to communicate the historical Christ and then also communicate um how how one can uh come to him you know and show him the roman road and and Things in the Bible that they need to get started, mm-hmm. so you gotta be prepared for that. You never know when God's gonna kind of use you. I think we're so focused sometimes on winning the argument it's hard to think yeah. that you can win the soul too you know
2: mm-hmm. I was gonna say too that uh if if these if those three laws at least aren't aren't laws of logic, then why uh-huh. do why do atheists? always use them and presuppose them and employ them. Yeah. Except they, it, they, except they can't account for them, you
3: know? I've seen I mean, to
0: kind of address that materialistic view because how do you have immaterial concepts in, in a, a purely material world? I mean, um, yeah. it doesn't explain the immaterial at all. It doesn't explain how you can have laws of logic to even begin with. No. Um, you
2: can't derive invariance from a changing universe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm.
3: So,
0: well, man, we're getting pretty close to two hours here. I, I was just looking at the clock and, uh, time just kind of flew by. So, that was, yeah, that was fun was, to well, do that. Did you get through your entire, uh, outline that you wanted to talk about?
2: Yeah, but I had a lot more. Uh, I could have I could have read and stuff. I don't know if you wanna like do a part two to this or
0: We we could do that.
2: Um I mean we could do like a whole a... series on this really. Yeah.
0: I mean and I think that um you know right now it's just you and I talking on talk shoes, so I don't know what your listening base is, but eventually if people want to like ask questions, it doesn't mean we'll always know the answer, but we can definitely look things up. You should have a contact point
3: mm-hmm. so that
0: people, you know, as they as they look down Later on, at, at some of these podcasts, they could say, "Oh, I, I listened to that old podcast, and uh, I do have a question, and how do I contact you?" So, um, mm. I don't know if you have
2: that already set up, but no, no, I literally like just started this this new room.
0: <laughs> well, you know, and I, I was mean, also thinking that
2: um, this know, room wasn't even really this room wasn't even really designed for this subject matter either. So, I don't know if like you want to. I mean, we could almost like create a new room, really, with that we're both, like, uh, we both right. use, and then, and then just well, you up, could, you upload this. You can keep this right? room,
0: Chris, and then,
2: because
0: yeah. I already have another room, I'm just going to change the name
1: and yeah, probably keep I think all do. my
0: stuff the same. But yeah. then I'll, I'll set up a uh, – it's pretty easy to set up, like, a Gmail account or something, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, because what I want to start doing is linking some of my Facebook groups to my new podcast, and then – uh we can link each other on these podcasts, and you know if if uh you want to borrow my audio and and upload it, but then we have two spots and then you you're not dependent on me and vice versa you know if you want to bring somebody in and, and do something it doesn't it doesn't reflect on what i'm doing so
3: because
0: mm-hmm. uh, we eventually might have different goals in mind and and things like that so mm-hmm. um, but
3: oh,
2: you you, you brought up really early on that you wanted to talk about like more like the history and stuff and I actually had like two books that had some substantial material on that that I was going to read so we could do that yeah we could do that for the next one kind of addressing the you know the evolution of uh, you know these philosophies and how they basically how they fail right and all that yeah
3: yeah,
0: that's a great education too, because I just know the the basics, and then uh, yeah, you know, also you know, I just gave kind of a really crude uh, beginning with Van Till. but there's other presuppositionalists that should be mentioned, like Gor- uh, I think his name's Gordon Clark.
2: Gordon Clark, he's very good, uh, extremely
0: good, and uh, you know, there's, so there's other people that were involved. I mean, Van Till is kind of recognized as the uh, the father of it, but there's
3: the pioneer, other people yeah. that
0: are involved. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. Um, yeah I don't wanna do a disservice to anybody that I didn't mention because I was mainly just talking about venttil mm. but um so
2: all right, uh, I guess we'll plan on uh we'll plan on doing that then, yeah let's do
0: a part um, two, and maybe we can talk more about um examples of i
2: i think I think this was a pretty good one that established i think we established the the basics and the foundation you know.
0: Yeah, I really pretty, liked pretty the, well. You know, explaining the induction because you gave lots of examples and that's what I was going to say is that uh maybe in the next one we can do more examples of how to use the presuppositional argument in debate and in uh you know kind of undercutting some of these modern arguments because I think that really helps. It helps me uh when I hear somebody use a line of argument, you know, just um or if I hear a debate, because then I can borrow little snippets of that and when I'm talking to other people and you know, it 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 kind of uh prepares you for what you're gonna meet. Yeah. Rather than just if you if you know the concepts but you can't communicate them, that's not very helpful.
2: Right. hmm.
0: So all
1: right, well sounds good.
0: And thanks, uh thanks for well, uh well, the other thing I was gonna say about having two different talk shoes is you can do then um like little um, stickies or whatever, you know, like introduction, uh, introduction uh, podcasts that leave contact information or in your show notes, um, so that you know if people look back on these and they want to uh, ask a question or or encourage us to go in a certain route or even have a criticism, um, you know, then then they can reach out.
1: So. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, man. Well,
1: thanks for having me on, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, man. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
3: A laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah. Oh.